We're going to be continuing in our sermon series, The Seven Deadly Sins. We are now at the sixth of the seven deadly sins, uh, the sin of gluttony. And I had actually purchased 12 dozen hot now, mouth-watering Krispy Kreme donuts. I had them in the lobby, but I decided to throw them away because I just didn't feel like it would be fitting for the sermon this morning. Sorry about that. Maybe next time. Um, but as I began my sermon prep this week, I realized that I, didn't, I don't know much about gluttony. Uh, so I decided to do a little experiment to help prepare myself. Um, I decided to spend a couple days indulging myself. Uh, I tried to indulge myself as much as I possibly could. I decided I would eat whatever I want, whenever I wanted. And uh, just decided to see how that would go. Because you can't, you know, you can't really understand gluttony unless you understand the glutton, right? So I figured it was a good idea. Now, I'm kidding, obviously, uh, about the donuts and the experiment. Don't go look in the trash can. Um, and I, also, I did not actually indulge myself without restraint this week. Uh, but I share that with you because I want you now to reflect on what came to mind when I said that. Uh, I'm sure that some of you were probably bothered by the idea. Um, but I can imagine that most of you were pro probably not over, overly alarmed by what I said. Clearly it would be a bad idea to indulge yourself like that uh, for a few days in a row. My body certainly would have suffered. But I doubt that many of you would have felt the need to pull me aside after the service and rebuke me. All right? However, if I had instead said, I want to do a little experiment this week, and I'm going to spend a couple days being as lustful as I possibly can, or being as angry as possible, or as greedy as possible, I imagine then most, if not all of you, would have objected. Uh, you certainly uh, would have been concerned. I know my wife would have objected. And many of you would have rightfully approached me after the service to let me know that I was out of line. So what's the point that I'm making the point that I'm making is that the challenge that lies before me this morning is to talk about a deadly sin that many, if not most of us, don't consider a sin at all. Certainly, gluttony is something that we feel like is unwise. We can all agree on that. But seeing gluttony as an affront to God and others that warrants repentance, I'm not sure that many of us would agree with that. Let me try to prove my point here. Here's a few examples that I think validate my claim that we don't believe gluttony is a sin. Some of them are more playful, some more serious. Exhibit A. We talk in jest about how a certain dessert is sinful, but how many times have you actually ever repented from overindulging in sweets? Like actually, honestly, ask God for forgiveness, repented. Exhibit B. I vividly remember being on a cruise with some friends, all Christians I might add, and I remember how we applauded one person from amongst us, who I'm not going to name, who successfully polished off eight portions of the prime rib, followed by six portions of the lobster tail. I'm not making that up. And we cheered for him after he did that. How about some examples from society? 
In our cultures, cookbooks outsell the Bible roughly 10 to 1. Exhibit D, because our society is so prone to indulgence and because the demand for food has gotten so out of control, the food industry has been compelled to sell us beef from a cow that spends most of its life standing in its own excrement in order to maintain the volume of beef that our wonderful society demands. And lastly, Exhibit E, McDonald's is still counting the number of hamburgers that they have distributed across the world. Someone please tell them to stop. Why are they counting all these hamburgers? What, the, what these examples tell us, what they inform us, is that we live in a society that not only doesn't see gluttony as wrong, but even more so, we live in a society that heralds gluttony. We praise and applaud gluttony. And this morning, I want to stand in opposition to the culture, and I want to argue that gluttony is in fact a sin, a deadly sin, not just an insignificant one, if there were such a thing, and that we as Christians, especially in our gluttony-saturated culture, need to be vigilant in the way that we seek to rid ourselves of this, dare I say, evil. Amen? That's how, that's my goal this morning. Full disclosure here, I came into my preparation this week uh, completely blind to this issue, just being honest. I honestly thought it was pretty much a non-issue. Uh, I spent the first couple of days thinking, how in the world am I going to write a whole sermon on food? What a waste of time. Um, but after spending time in God's Word and allowing it to work on me, uh, I began to be convinced that we do have a serious problem here and that it most definitely needs to be addressed. So let's begin on that. Our text this morning comes from the book of Psalms, uh, the 34th Psalm, verses 1 through 10. As you're turning there, I want to give a brief disclaimer. Uh, this is tr a true topical sermon. Uh, there is no biblical text from which one could preach an expository verse-by-verse -verse sermon on gluttony. Although gluttony is obviously clearly discussed throughout the scriptures. So this will be a true topical sermon, uh, which is not normally what we do here at Christ Central. But nonetheless, I do want to go ahead and read Psalm 34 because I believe that this is the text that anchors the principles that counteract the sin of gluttony. So I'm going to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Psalm 34, 1 through 10. God says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us through your word. I pray that you would use me, a broken and sinful man, as your vessel to bring forth your truth so that we, your people, might be encouraged and transformed. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You can be seated. For those of you who like an outline, I have three points this morning. The first point is I'm starving. The second point is what's for dinner. And the third point is I'll have the filet mignon. I'm starving. What's for dinner? I'll have the filet mignon. So let's begin. Once again, as we've done each week in the previous sermons, we begin by defining the sin. Now, what is the sin of gluttony? Now, most of us hear the word gluttony, we picture someone who is morbidly obese, sauntering back to the buffet line for helping number seven, with the crumbs from helping number six still all over their chest, right? That's the common cultural conception of gluttony. However, the sin of gluttony, as defined by the church fathers many years ago, is far more complex than simply overeating. I want to begin by challenging you with the idea that gluttony doesn't have actually much at all to do with weight. What if being overweight, this is earth-shattering, is not actually sinful? Please show me a verse that says otherwise if you disagree. What if each one of us, regardless of size or weight, has the potential to be incredibly gluttonous? I weigh 160 pounds, soaking wet with my clothes on. I have an incredibly high metabolism, which has enabled me to eat pretty much whatever I want for the past 31 years without ever actually gaining weight. That is a fact. Now, some of you are so upset by that statement that you're considering coming on the stage and hurting me. And you need to go listen to the sermons about anger and envy and deal with that. (laughs) But that's the truth. And therefore, according to the common perception of gluttony, I don't fit the bill because I have a size 32 waist. But if our definition of gluttony is a little bit off, then maybe I have the potential of gluttony just as much as everyone else. And I want to define gluttony as the idolatry of food. It's the worship of food, the obsession with food, the inordinate desire for food and about food. And so when we begin to look at gluttony from this perspective, we see that gluttony is not so much about how much we're eating, but instead how much pleasure we are taking in eating and why. Therefore, our diagnostic question should not be how much is too much, but instead how dominated by the desire for this pleasure am I. Amen? You guys tracking with me? So now coming from this perspective, I want to unpack the different ways that the food idolatry manifests itself in our day-to-day lives. The church fathers historically talked about two different types of gluttony. Gluttony of excess and gluttony of delicacy. I want to start with gluttony of excess. It's the more familiar understanding, so we'll start there. The gluttony of excess is the practice of eating too much or dwelling too much on food because of an excessive and inordinate love of eating. It's when we no longer eat to live, but we live to eat. Amen? Anybody resonating yet? Examples of this are having that extra piece of cake when our pants button is already holding on for dear life. Or snacking all day long because the simple act of eating brings so much pleasure. Or planning your whole day around what you're going to eat and allowing the next meal to be the thing that always consumes your thoughts. This form of gluttony is not so hard to recognize, but more so is something that we struggle to recognize as sin. 
More on that later. But for now, let's just acknowledge that many of us struggle with this form of gluttony. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Gluttony of delicacy. What is that? This is the far more subtle and culturally acceptable form of gluttony. This form of gluttony is best defined as eating with too much fuss. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, does a marvelous job of exposing, exposing the gluttony of delicacy. For those who haven't read the book, it's, the premise is that it's a study in temptation told through the correspondence of a senior devil to his understudy. And they're talking about how they're going to best enslave humanity in sin. So I want to read this section from the book. It's the senior devil talking to the junior devil. He says, My dear Wormwood, that's the junior devil, the contemptuous way in which you spoke of gluttony as a means of catching soul in your last letter only shows your ignorance. One of the great achievements of the last hundred years has been to deaden the human conscience on that subject. So by now you will hardly find a sermon preached or a conscience troubled about it in the whole length and breadth of Europe. This has largely been affected by concentrating all our efforts on the gluttony of delicacy, not gluttony of excess. Your patient's mother, as I learned from Glubos, is a good example. She would be astonished one day, I hope she will, to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality, which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the quantities involved are small. But what do quantities matter provided we can use a human belly and a palate to produce querulousness, that means complaining, impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern? Glubos has this old woman well in hand. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She is always turning from what has been offered her to say with a demure little smile and a sigh, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. It's a beautiful passage there. He says, he's making the point uh, that there is this deadly but subtle nature of gluttony, the gluttony of delicacy. It's the obsession with food, although often manifested in non-eating rather than eating, but obsessive just the same. And one of the inevitable consequences that Lewis is pointing out is that this form of gluttony turns us into a really big jerk. Uh, we become a terror to every waiter and waitress or dinner host or hostess because we can't stand it when the food is not healthy enough, or is not warm enough, warm enough, or does not match our dietary preference, or is too much or too little, too expensive, too cheap, not seasoned well, it takes too long, or it's not local, and so forth and so on. Now, not that any of those things are innately bad, but when these preferences become ultimate things that we will not budge on, that's when it produces in us this spirit of complaining, impatience, uncharitableness, and ultimately just plain selfishness. And that's when the sin of gluttony appears. But who's to say that these forms of gluttony are even wrong? That's really the big question, right? Who's to say that these are even a sin? Again, we, we would all culturally believe that these behaviors are unwise, but a sin, that may be stretching it. I think the clearest biblical renunciation of this kind of behavior is found in 1 Corinthians 6. This is what Paul says. We've actually read this passage previously in this series. He says, All things are lawful for me, 
but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. What Paul is saying here as it relates to food is that clearly food in and of itself is not evil. It's not bad. In fact, it's a gift from God, right? It's a, it's a gift that we're supposed to enjoy, and it's necessary for sustaining life. But the point that Paul is making is that when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, when it begins to exert power over us, that's when sin is birthed. When I can't help but eat that last cookie, even though I know somebody else wants it, and I know I don't need it, I'm being dominated by food, and therefore I'm sinning. When I'm obsessing over the healthiness and presentation of each and every meal, and I snobbishly refuse to eat what is served to me by my neighbor, then I'm being dominated by food, and therefore I'm sinning. So what I want you to take a moment here and begin to ask yourself is, what kind of power does food have over you? In what ways is food more than just a good thing in your life, but rather an ultimate thing? As we begin to honestly ask these questions, that we will begin to see the evidence of the sin of gluttony in our lives. Which leads us to our second point this morning. What's for dinner? So now that we've established that gluttony is in fact a sin, our next step is to determine why this sin is so pervasive in our lives. Why is it that we are, what is it, excuse me, what is it that we are in fact hungry for that motivates us to be so gluttonous? Frederick Beekner once said, A glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. Peter DeVries says the same thing a little bit differently. Gluttony is an emotional escape, a sign something is eating us. The point that both of these men are making is so significant in our understanding of this sin and in our ability to overcome this sin. What they're both saying is that what the glutton is desiring is actually not food. This is massive. Just like the quote that Daniel mentioned a few weeks ago about how a man knocking on the door of, the, of a brothel is knocking for God, so also the glutton is not really, really looking to satisfy a carnal desire, but a spiritual one. Again, true confession here. As I begin to read this, I'm thinking, this is absurd. This is overly dramatic. No way does food actually exert that kind of power over people. This is not founded in reality. So in order for me to test the validity of this claim, I actually did do an experiment this week. I spent a day just observing my eating. I observed when I ate, what I ate, how much I ate, and most importantly, why I ate. And the thing that I noticed is that there were numerous times throughout the day that I sought to eat because I was anxious. And when I reflect on what was happening, I began to realize that I was looking to find an escape in food. I was stepping away from my work often to find release. I realized that I was most often looking to snack at times when I was feeling inadequate or ill-equipped or afraid or insecure. For example, this actually happened this week. I'm writing my sermon on gluttony, feeling totally ill-equipped to speak on the subject, and I pulled away from my computer and went hunting for a snack in my office. I actually did that. And in the moment, it didn't even land. 
I didn't even register what was going on. I mean, what a beautiful picture of irony. And thankfully, as I continued to spend time in the Word, God began to show me what was happening. I was trying to fill an emotional void with food. And I began to realize that I, I was looking outside of God for what I desperately needed from Him. And so as I realized this, I began to try to resist the urge to snack. And some of you guys may know how this goes, but as I started to do this, I started to feel all kinds of edgy and uncomfortable. <laughs> kind of like a true addict trying to quit cold turkey. I was breaking into cold sweats. I, was, I need something to eat. I had no idea that food played such a huge role in my life. I was trying to fill myself with food to compensate for my spiritual emptiness. And the depressing thing about that is that we all know it doesn't work, right? We can fill our bellies, but our hearts end up still being hollow. And the danger is, hear me church, this is important, that we, when we begin to make this a pattern in our lives, we run the risk of becoming full on earthly things. And as a result, our appetite for spiritual things begins to lessen. That's the real danger, right? That's why this sin is so deadly. I think the author of Proverbs 30 makes this point beautifully. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Church, it is so essential that we be careful that food does not become everything, an idol in our life. Because if not, if it does, verse 9 becomes true and we become full and we in turn deny God and say, who is Lord? Let me try to break this down just a touch more. I want to make sure this lands. This is how it manifests itself in my own life. So I'm feeling anxious about something, whatever it may be. And God is longing for me to bring that anxiety to him and to meet him. He wants to meet me there and he wants to bring me that comfort and security that I need. But instead, I run to food. I get that quick fix. And in turn, I miss out on the true satisfaction that God wants to offer me. I'm feeling emptiness or neediness, and I don't have to wait on God to fill me, to satisfy me. With food, I can comfort myself. Amen? I can fill myself. I can provide pleasure for myself. And as a result, I begin to develop a pattern of pursuing happiness in what I can do. And not in what God can give to me. What he can offer for me. Church, can anybody relate to that? I don't know if that's just me. Are you seeking to comfort yourself apart from God through eating? I think most, if not all of us, do this. And, and when we put it like that, we begin to really see the deadliness of this sin. Why the church fathers added this to the list. Now, some of you, are, are, I know, are sitting right there right now and you're pushing back. I, I hear you because I've been there all week. But if you feel that way, I really want to challenge you. I challenge you this week to spend a day, just one day, observing what you eat, when you eat, and most importantly, why you eat. And see if there's not a connection there with what's spiritually going on in your life, what's going on in your heart. I think you will be surprised. This leads us to our... Third and final point, I'll have the filet mignon. So what's the solution here? We've got a problem, right? But how do we tame this hunger that so dominates our hearts and lives? How do we stop running to food to satisfy that which God longs to bless us with? 
Each week we've tried to offer you guys some practical solutions, some practical steps to seek to conquer the sins that so permeate our lives. And I want to do the same this week. The two that I want to offer you, two practical solutions, are fasting and feasting. Fasting and feasting. Let's begin with fasting. Fasting is the practice of withholding certain things, typically food, for a designated amount of time. And when you think, when we talk about spiritual disciplines, historically fasting would have made itself very high on the list. It was a very common practice historically. But for some reason, you almost never hear about it in the church today. Maybe because our gluttonous hearts have allowed ourselves to skip over those passages in the scripture. I don't know why it has disappeared, but it's a discipline that needs to be cultivated again. And what's the purpose of fasting? Why do we do it? There's There's many reasons that are given to us in the scriptures, but I want to highlight two of them. There's two reasons that I want to highlight. We fast to reveal sin and to cultivate thankfulness. To reveal sin and to cultivate thankfulness. First, to reveal sin. I spent a day this week fasting. Uh, It used to be a part of my normal life. And again, I confess like many of us have allowed it to fall out of practice. And so when I picked it back up, it was more difficult than I remembered. Why? I think because, unbeknownst to me, I had over time allowed food to create such a a place of significance and power in my life. So uh, there was so much energy that's focused in my life around food and and creating that desire of being met. So within 24 hours of withholding food, I began to realize how much power food had over my life. That was part A. And then part B, I began to realize how little I was hungry and thirsting for God. So just spending one day... And withholding food from my life, these, it was so revealing to me the depths of my own sin when it comes to food. And not just food, but in my own hunger and thirst for God. So I challenge you to do that this week. Pick a day and to enter into a fast and see what that reveals in terms of your life, in terms of the sin in your life. The other thing that will inevitably happen is it will cultivate thankfulness in your life. The day that I fasted this week, two people came in my office and asked for food. Tell me that's not God speaking to me while he's providing for his children. And what I was reminded of is that I have the privilege to choose when I get to eat and when I don't get to eat. But not everybody has that privilege. And so when we withhold certain things in our life, we realize how God has richly and abundantly blessed us. And he gives us a totally different perspective on something like food. Amen? Amen. So I want to put that before you guys. I want you guys to put to practice this prayer that we often say, the Lord's Prayer, and live, at, live that out through fasting. We're saying, give us today our daily bread. So I want to put that before you, and I'd love to hear how that goes. Please let me know. The other thing that I want to put before you is feasting. Fasting and feasting. Sounds a little counterproductive to present feasting as a solution to gluttony. I'm, I'm not asking you to go stuff your face in order to solve this issue of gluttony in your life. But the key here for this remedy is the object of the feasting. What are we feasting upon? Remember back to Proverbs 30, the author says to God, he asked God to feed him with the food that is needful for me. It's a beautiful humility. He's saying, God, you know what I need, and clearly I do not. If left to my own vices, I'm going to indulge myself with things that are not good for me. But God, you know what I need. I'm asking you to provide that for me and give only that to me. And here's where I want to take us now to Psalm 34 because I think that King David understands this more than anyone. Uh, The context of this psalm that we read at the beginning 
King David's running for his life because King Saul is trying to kill him. And God has just delivered him from this really difficult situation. He's escaped to a cave, and he's being comforted by his friends and family. And this is where he pens this song. And so I want you to return with me now to verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Did you, did you see? Did you catch what David was saying there? In his spiritual hunger, he refused to look elsewhere to be satisfied. He didn't go to the pantry or the local bar, but instead he, verse 4, sought the Lord. And what's the result of his seeking? His hunger was abated. He experienced the true satisfaction that comes from the Lord. That's the opposite of gluttony. Amen? Instead of looking to satisfy ourselves, we run to Jesus to be filled. I want to leave you guys this morning with verse 8. It's a very familiar passage, I know to many, and it's extremely fitting on a sermon on gluttony. Verse 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, David is so moved by his experience that he's compelled to preach. He's proselytizing this way of living. He's saying, he's giving us a command. He says, go, taste, and see. He commands us to lean into God and to look to God to satisfy those deep longings. He's saying, come to me. Church, the only way that we're going to conquer our idol of gluttony is to find something that's more satisfying to fill us up. The way that Cynthia Heimel says this, she says, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. What she's saying is that we have to feast on something that tastes even better than that which we've been feasting on. So church, we must feast on the Lord and experientially be reminded of the joy that He provides is far richer than anything that this world has to offer. Amen. I want to give the prophet Isaiah the last word and, and, and Church, hear this as his plea. This is God's plea directly from heaven to you. This is God, the one who longs to fill you and to set you free from your gluttonous ways. So I ask that you just listen as he speaks this and he calls out to you from Isaiah 55. God says, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters and you have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Amen? Let's pray.